Welcome to episode 140 of the Daniel Yours podcast with today's guest, Julia Shelley. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Joined here today by Julia Shelley. Julia, thank you for bearing with me on the awkwardness of the staring at each other in silence after we were just having a full conversation uh, just <laughs> yeah. for, for the, 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 the technical aspects of the podcast. But thank you for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Julia, I was trying to think of a way to to introduce you. And I know that we just talked about how I don't really introduce guests and I kind of, but like you've done so many different things and I don't know that there's like one way to define you. Like, is there something that when someone asks you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? What do I do? Let's see. Well, it's, it's changed. Uh, I've had many different roles as we all do <laughs> over the years, um, especially career roles, uh, career roles as well. So, uh, currently what I do is I am a, a fitness coach, an online fitness coach. I've, uh, done personal training and everything in, in person. Um, however, I traveled the world for 21 years, for the past 21 years. And so I really loved creating an online community because I'm so used to being, uh, on the go. And so I, I like to be able to, to train people remotely as well. Um, so I actually have a team of women called Army of Angels that I coach. And I started that business a year and a half ago. And uh, they, my ladies are also all over the world. I'm in Calgary, Alberta, but we are in six different countries, which is where my clients currently are. Uh, the majority in North America. Uh, however, just because of my life of traveling the world for the past 21 years, uh, the type of clients I seem to attract tend to come from some of the experience I've had while living in Africa and everything. So, so that's what I'm currently doing is an online coach for a team of women. Uh, we go through, you know, fitness, nutrition, mindset. We meet for weekly group calls on talking about many different topics. And then usually twice a year, we have a retreat as well. So, so far the retreats have only been in Canada. Next year, we will be branching out and going international with these retreats. So that is what I'm currently up to. Amazing. Yeah. Bringing that online experience into real life, which is how you and I met at the Evolve Strength Conference in, in Edmonton. Yeah. It's like, we all, you know, talk online and we spend time online and we work online and we do stuff online, but like, we're also real people and like real people like to be with people and especially people yeah. trainers in fitness almost all of us have like a background of uh training in person and so we're like around people we are where we like to be around people we like to talk to people we like to you know just be with other humans and so bringing that together with with clients is is amazing a challenge mm -hmm. for sure i'm sure on the on the business end which we don't really need to discuss but but also mm -hmm. um just a, just an amazing way to just bring people together and let people know that like you know, there's other people like you or people have your, your struggles too. And, and you're all going to get through it and we're all going to be, we're all going to be okay together here. Yeah, absolutely. I find it really helps clients when they get to know each other as well. When they know that they're part of a team and that they aren't alone in, in whatever their struggles are and that we can, you know, go through that together, but also celebrate each other's wins together as well. So having that uh, online is, is powerful but making sure that we meet regularly to foster those relationships is also really, really powerful. And then when we can meet together, it's in person. It's so incredibly special. So right. I love that. Yeah. Right. And bringing that that team aspect to something that is very much an an individual effort. Like you work out by yourself, you eat by yourself, like you do mm -hmm. all the things by yourself. I'm, you know, I'm. I'll speak for for all coaches. Like if I could work out 
and eat for my clients, I would easily do that because yeah. one, it would just make my job so easy. Everyone would have like the best results. I could just do everything for them. But like, obviously, you know, that's not, that's not the way it is. So, but bringing that team aspect to something that's very much an individual pursuit is, uh, is super, super interesting. Now, one thing you referenced there, and I want to give, you know, start to give people some, some context to, to this conversation is that you lived in Africa and you've lived and done some things that, you know, you've lived more of life and seen more things than most people will, will ever see myself, especially included and most other people. Um, but can you give us a brief overview of why you're living in Africa? What was, what you were doing while traveling the world for the last uh, 21 years? And then we'll sort of, you know, break down, break that down. Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, I'll take it back to how it, how it actually started. So I, I grew up, uh, you're in Ontario as well, right? Yeah, you're, just at yeah. Toronto. Okay, right. I, I grew up in Guelph. So uh, okay, I close. was, you know, smaller um, smaller city back then as well. Uh, it's yeah. definitely grown, uh, but smaller city back then. And I grew up in kind of a, I don't want to, certainly don't want to act hard, hard done by by any means because of my experiences traveling the world. I, I have, you know, seen much worse. Um, but we didn't have a lot of money. We'll just say that. So we didn't have a lot of money. And so my family had never traveled. Nobody had ever, we hadn't left Ontario. We hadn't got, gone anywhere. Wow. And so I always had this uh, excitement and zest for life. And I really was curious as a young kid. And I really wanted to see, you know, what was out there. And I actually remember that there was this um, there was this restaurant in our local mall, which was across the street from where we lived, and it was called Timbuktu. It was kind of like Rainforest Cafe. Okay. In <laughs> you know, I know they have that in Toronto, so it was kind of like that. It was called Timbuktu, and it was all decorated, you know, an Africa theme, and I loved it. And this was my favorite restaurant. So every birthday as a kid, I always wanted to go there, and I just became fascinated with it. So my mom even decorated my room as kind of a jungle, like Africa theme. So even as a young child, I was fascinated <laughs> with Africa. And then, um, yeah, so as I grew up, it's it's interesting how it went there because I d- had no motivation from, you know, or uh, was not led in that way from anyone in my family. My Nobody in my family had served. Nobody's been in the military. Um, not many people had really traveled. Many of them haven't even left Ontario. And so I, I remember even getting on the 401. There's a couple members of <laughs> in my family that have, won't even get on the 401. Like that, that's, <laughs> that scares them. So I thought, I don't, getting I, on the I, 401 is a horrible thought to anyone who doesn't is, know. The 401 is like the worst <laughs> highway of all time, but it anyways. is pretty scary. I will admit. <laughs> um, yeah, probably going to Africa might be easier, but it's <laughs> no, it, uh, I don't necessarily know where that came from. All I know is I loved this restaurant, Timbuktu, when I was a kid. And my grandparents had National Geographic. They had a subscription. And I loved it. So we didn't have it. But every time we went to their house, I was fascinated with the photography in National Geographic. And so I was just very curious as a young kid and decided that I needed to see the world. But yet again, we didn't come from much Um we couldn't really afford that. And so we had never traveled. So I thought, how am I going to do this? And how am, how am I going to see the world um, when I can't afford a plane ticket? So I applied to be a flight attendant. <laughs> I thought, I'll get paid. <laughs> I'll get paid to see the world. And uh, so I, I got the job when I was 19, uh, which was shocking because I only had Delhi girl on the resume. Uh, worked worked at Zares in the Delhi and that was it. So uh, I had some 
friends that were with this airline and, you know, kind of helped coach me for the interview. And I eventually, I, I got the job and that was my first airline. Uh, they've gone under, that was a long time ago, but I went from, from them to when, when they went bankrupt to another, was with them for another, you know, eight years. And then eventually at, I started traveling more and more, saw North America, saw Europe, and eventually was just curious, like what else is out there? So after the first, I'd say eight or nine years uh, as a flight attendant, going to more of the Caribbean and European destinations, I wanted more. So I applied to an airline in the Middle East called Etihad, and I moved to Abu Dhabi, spent a year there, um, traveling more of m- more of Asia um, and Australia a little bit. And then after that, again, I was, it just kept piquing my curiosity. I thought, okay, what else is there? And so I came home after that. Uh, I actually went back to school for policing and was interested in going to Africa because I had been, but not much of it, but I wanted to go over with the UN and I did not know how to get involved with the UN. All I knew is that, I wanted to make a difference and I wanted to go overseas and be able to help women like victims of human trafficking. Uh, there was lots of, lots of different, um, motivators that I, that I had from my experience living in the Middle East and everything. So, uh, I came home, went to school for policing, had zero desire to actually do many of the jobs that are required to be a police. Like I never wanted to hand out a parking ticket. I, d- I did not want to go through what I had to go through to get to the departments I wanted to, to go to Africa. But I knew that was part of it. So I started um, going down that avenue. And while I was doing it, uh, a pilot that I knew reached out to me and said, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I said, this is, this is my end goal. And he's like, well, I know how to get you to Africa. Now uh, you can come over to the to work for the UN now with the current experience you have as a flight attendant. And this will give you the experience to see what it's like before you jump through hoops and maybe work for the RCMP and go up north and hand out parking tickets and break mm. up bar fights and then eventually 10 years later get to Africa. Right. So yeah, so he saved me about a decade of, of working my way up and said, we'll bring you here now. And so I went over with my experience as a flight attendant. Uh, they also thankfully liked the security experience uh, that I learned in school as well. Since the UN, uh, my airline ended up deploying us to the UN missions. And so all of our missions were all over the Middle East and Africa. So, of course, the combination of being a flight attendant and then having uh, a security kind of background really spoke to them. So, yeah, so that's um, so 2012, I ended up on my first deployment in Afghanistan. Uh, I did two years there and then um when they pulled out of that war at the end of 2013, then I was sent straight to Timbuktu. Go figure. Oh, wow. Yeah. The so actual all, Timbuktu? It actually came full circle. I remember <laughs> when I got the call leaving Afghanistan, they're like, because normally after a tour, you come home, you rest a little bit. And uh, because the base was closing, I, I stayed in Afghanistan to close down the base. And as we were leaving, I remember it was, yeah, December 27th, 20, uh, 2013. And my boss called and said, I know you're supposed to go home, um, but how do you feel about going to Timbuktu? And I, and I, I was like, you're joking. 
And he's like, no, it's, it's a real place. It's in, it's in Mali. Do you want to go? And I was like, absolutely. It's like, you, you can't take your time off. You have to go right away. Like you're needed right now. And it's like, sign me up. Let's go. So I went straight from, yeah, Afghanistan. I think I flew through Turkey, Casablanca and ended up in Timbuktu. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a way to make that story come full circle, actually ending up in the real, the real Timbuktu. The real place. Yeah. I remember, you know, and in, in, um, I don't know if you watched Bugs Bunny as a, as a kid, mm-hmm. but like they would always say he should have taken the left turn at Albuquerque. And for the longest time, I didn't think that Albuquerque was like a real place right. until I started, <laughs> until I started watching um, the UFC and there's like a whole bunch of uh, fighters, and like a big fight team that, that, uh, trains and lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I was like, is this real? And I looked it up. I was like, sure enough, Albuquerque is a real place. And sure yeah. enough, Timbuktu is also a real place in the world. Yeah. You know what I learned while I was in Timbuktu? Uh, well, I wasn't living in Timbuktu. I was living in um, Bamako, Mali. And then we would fly into Timbuktu. And uh, so we, when we would like go out and socialize and meet other expats and everything in, in Bamako, uh, I was out one night and I met an American guy from Kalamazoo. <laughs> And he was like, yeah, like I'm, that's where I grew up. I'm from Kalamazoo. I'm like, that's a real place. Like, yeah. I'm like, so you pretty much are here because you just had to complete the circle. Like you had to go from (laughs) Kalamazoo to Timbuktu and you're purely doing this for the name, aren't you? (laughs) It's just like, well, partly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's so interesting. I wonder if you really even put that together until you said it to him because to him it's like, it's just. It's yeah. just normal. Like he's actually from Kalamazoo. It's like a real place to him, obviously. But like to the rest <laughs> of us, it's like that's not a real. That's like a thing that people. It's like a saying, not a yeah. real actual mm-hmm. place, right? Yeah. <laughs> the funny thing with with Timbuktu as well is uh, it's French. So so Mali is French speaking. So people say Timbuktu, but the airport sign and locals say um, it's it's Tombuktu the way it's spelt. Mm. So it's actually Tom. Buck two on the airport sign. So, yeah, I remember when I when I got there, I was like, "Hey, wait, is this the right place?" <laughs> like, <laughs> there you yeah, go. There's some there's some French. trivia knowledge for everyone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, how does fitness fit into all this? Of course, you had some like experiences, and like you know, we spoke in in person about this. We had some mm-hmm. wild experiences, which we may or may not get, get into. Um, but where does fitness fit into all this? I got to imagine that. Um, you know, you didn't just start working out like a couple of years ago. And so like, you know, even before the police force, like wasn't your first time ever working out, you were probably active as a kid, but where did the the competition and that stuff squeeze into all this? Uh, well, I was, I was active as a kid, but not really on as many uh, sports teams as people would expect. Cause when you become uh, competitive in sports later on or fitness competitors or even trainers, a lot of us come from loving sports and and playing and and multiple different sports growing up. So a lot of people find that really strange and different about me that I, that I didn't, I did gymnastics as a kid. So that was my first kind of um, introduction to, to fitness was through gymnastics. And then I would do all the sports, you know, in gym class and school, but by no means did I excel in any of them. And it's funny because I was always better in um, any kind of sport like gymnastics where it's like just you beating your personal best. I was never great in the – I love working with a team. Obviously, I coach a team now. Um, But I was never great at being competitive with people. I've always been competitive with myself. Interesting. So that's just – I always had to beat my best self whether it was in like a skill or a strength goal or whatever it was. So I don't, I don't know why that 
that just didn't happen for me with, uh, with team sports. So I stuck with gymnastics for a long time. And then, um, I guess getting into my early twenties, I, I didn't, I rollerbladed a lot. Honestly, I don't think I did any, I don't think I went to a gym yet because I was still in a phase where, uh, you know, early twenties, I just wanted to, uh, be pretty and, and, and cute and attractive. And I didn't want to gain too much muscle. And so I, I was afraid of protein and I was, a, <laughs> I didn't want to lift heavy weights or anything like that. So I remember those feelings now. So it, it's, uh, I have always have to remind myself of that for, for clients when they're starting there. Right. Uh, so I remember feeling that way and it wasn't until I went to school for policing that I decided, oh yeah, now I, I do want to be strong. I need to be strong, first of yeah, all, yeah. to pass the, the fitness exam and the test. And, um, and what do I, what do I need to get there? So I knew I needed to start running, which I remember I, I think my first run in college was around 3k in the winter time. And I got a cramp and went home sulking. Like it was, I was not athletic. I didn't look like I was in bad shape, but I was, I guess, skinny fat. Like I was not athletic. Right. Right. <laughs> which, which is an important distinction, right? Like people mm-hmm. can be, can be thin and not, and not strong or, or even healthy for that matter. Right. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I remember it started with running and, and then just, you know, being told just, you got to breathe through it, run through the cramps, like get, you know, you're going to, surpass this. And so I remember going from, I think it was in February, 3K, getting a cramp, going home and wimping out to, I think that August, I did my first half marathon. And then a few months later did uh, a 30K in Hamilton, the around the bay. So it, it, just by keeping at it and staying consistent in the training, you do get yourself there. Cause I remember that 3K seemed like the biggest hurdle to surpass. And not even a year later, it was 30 K. So that was really the first time I realized, um, how much I did enjoy that challenge. And so then I, it, it turned into not just running. Okay. Well, what else do I need to do? So in policing, it was, uh, in our fitness test, there was a lot of, um, a lot of strength as well. So there was a lot of, you know, of, of chin-ups and push-ups, and then our actual, um, obstacle course that we had to do to apply. Right. So, I started really working on that. Um, I also went back to school as an adult student because I was a flight attendant for so long and I was living in the Middle East before that. So when I was in college, I was actually 27. And so I was 10 years older, about nine or 10 years older than most of the kids I went to school with. And being that I was in school for policing, there was predominantly men, right? There's definitely a few women, but way more men. And, uh, and just because they were so much younger than us and they're just like, I guess the whole boys being boys thing, just kind of heckling us and bugging us about our fitness standards. And so we were judged differently. Yeah. So the, there were, there were four judging cards. There was, um, men, I think it was under 18 or over 18. Could have been 19, 18 or 19. Um, and then there was women under, let's say 18 or 19 and over. And so I was on the easiest card, being female and an adult student, 27. They were a little bit more lenient with me compared to a younger male, right? 
So I remember the guys in the class, um, not necessarily making fun of me directly, but just making fun of the girls as a whole. There was a couple guys that just really, uh, I don't know, were just kind of bullies. And so they were poking fun at how easy it was. And if they, all they had to do was what we had to do, like they'd, you know, have a hundred percent, whatever, it'd be so simple. And that got to me. And also because I was so much older than all the other women in the class, I had never looked at myself as a leader, but at that moment, I took that initiative to be a leader because I thought, oh, I better stand up for these women. <laughs> so I took that role and I, I asked the teacher that day, I was like, okay, fine. Uh, I want the like 17 year old boys card. And she's like, you know, your final mark you're marked on this, right? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to show that kid. So give me the 17-year-old boy, boy's card because that's what he was marked on. So I challenged the bully in the class. Nice. <laughs> it's to be marked on the same card. And I got 100%. Amazing. I will say <laughs> so. that. I will say that. I In, in my university, um, one of my professors was responsible for a lot of the fitness testing for uh, firefighters in like Southern Ontario. And for, yeah. so, so similar, I, I don't know. And there was like security guard or not secure prison guards and like a couple of other, these type of, uh, type of jobs, not, not police officers, but similar style of thing. And I remember like for what it's worth for, for the boys, like that, like, uh, fitness standards for the men was not mm-hmm. all that hard. Like no. as a, as if you were like a decently in shape, like 18, 19, mm-hmm. 20 year old male, like you should be able to pass that. You didn't have to be some like super monster to, to pass it. So for them to like be belittling, be belittling yeah. you yeah. Or, or the women in general and like acting like they're so tough because they can pass their own tests. Like they're not that, you know, it's like, yeah, r- relax a little bit. It's not that, it's not that crazy. Right. Oh, they were like 17 year old boys. Like I just, yeah. at that, at that stage, um, I, I didn't, I don't know what I was expecting, but I just thought, okay, well, I knew it was bugging some of the younger girls in the class. Yeah. So I was like, well, I need to, to rally up for the girls yeah. and get us together and we, and push them. So, um, so yeah, I just, I went for it. I went for, um, I went for two different awards because then I got into running, of course, cause of training for the 30 K. So, uh, there was a most mileage award and then there was a like female and male athletes of the year. So, yeah, I, I went I went hard after both of them. And it's funny because I, I wasn't that girl in high school. I wasn't on many teams or anything like that. Um, but the second I got there and had that kind of um I felt like I'm I I was in a role where I could stand up and make a difference and and lead these women. And I don't know where that came from because again, I I don't I wasn't like that in high school. I just felt the uh that it was my responsibility. So I did. And I think that was the first time that I was ever in a kind of a coaching position where I was a leader. I don't think I ever saw myself as a leader before then. And that really shifted my perspective and also helped my own confidence. So once I put myself into those situations and then worked on my health and fitness throughout the year to make that outcome happen, I saw the difference that it could make, not just in, in fitness, and, you know, getting in shape, but just the, my confidence soared. Um, my grades were doing better. I was just, I was nailing every other part of my life, you know, and I was just so much more motivated. So I realized the impact that fitness could have and it just really took off. And so from there, it also gave me the courage, you know, cause I was able to do that. Then when I finished school and ended up falling 
kind of backwards into this this uh, position overseas to work with the UN. I don't know that I would have had the courage or had the guts to go to Afghanistan right away, but I think all of that led to it. Like my confidence just soared in that time. And I thought, yeah, I can do this. Like they just like that boy challenging me in college, like now the new challenge is Afghanistan. So let's go. <laughs> right. I was, I was just going to say, like, I would have a hunch that part of this is like the graded exposure to more and more difficult tasks where your first mm-hmm. run was like a three kilometer run and it like, you know, crushed you, but you, you know, you, you did it, it crushed you, but you did it. And then after that, it's like, okay, well that was hard, but I got through that. Like, okay, what's the next thing? Can we do four kilometers, five kilometers, you know, whatever it is, can we do, exactly. can we do it faster? Can we do it better? And like slowly, slowly, slowly. And this is how everyone's fitness journey goes, right? They see someone like, you know, you or, or, or me or other fitness people doing, you know, lifting however much weight they're lifting. They're like, oh, I could never do that. It's like, well, mm-hmm. there was a day where we also couldn't do that either, yeah. right? Where we had to learn how to, you know, do a bodyweight squat and do a, you know, a dumbbell row with 10 pounds and like do all the things. And so leave it surely, it gets stronger. And, and this is where like, I really think that fitness crosses over into real life, just as you alluded to, where it's like these, this increasing exposure to difficult challenges in fitness translated to like, okay, you know, if I had to go live in like a war-torn country tomorrow, me personally, I'd be like, absolutely not. Because I've mm-hmm. never been in anything like that would be such a huge jump in in difficulty of life situation for me that I would have, I would have no way of like comprehending that, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, having traveled a little bit more, having maybe some more experience, having maybe friends in the region or having, you know, something like that makes it a little bit more uh, palatable to right. be able to do that thing, right? And then I would also imagine just your personality, like you said, trying to beat yourself constantly, yes. like in, in self-pursuits. It's like, okay, I did that. Can I do a little bit more? Can I do a little bit more? Can I do a little bit more? And then we're talking also about a long period of time, right? You didn't say that this happened in three weeks. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you were just like top of the class, beating all the boys, like doing the thing. It's like, no, this, you put in the work and it happened over some months and, and, exactly. and you got what you needed to get done, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. And then is that, so then you go to Afghanistan. And you haven't competed in fitness competitions yet. Is that correct? Uh, no, I did right before I left. Okay. So it started right before I left. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you competed there. And then, and and what category, uh, forgive me, I'm not super familiar with like all the, yeah. the, the bodybuilding categories, but what did you, what did you compete in? Uh, so I started in, um, well, I was, I was preparing for fitness as in kind of like how you see in IFBB with the fitness routine, but yep. not in, uh, not in the CPA, which, which leads there. So I started, my very first show was much smaller. It was a small regional show called the UFE. And it was just more of like a fun, it was a, it was called Halloween mayhem. And it was just more of a, I don't know. I thought it was a fun kind of dress up for Halloween sort of thing. So I dressed up as Tomb Raider because I always loved Angelina. Um, so so that was my first show. And I was training for the fitness routine round because of the gymnastics background. So I loved that part. Uh, and then that would, it had a modeling aspect to it as well. So fitness model, which was kind of an in-between bikini and, and figure. Right. And two weeks before uh, the competition, I was practicing my routine and the splits and I, I pulled like my hamstring really badly and it was bruised and it was, it was bad. So um, I couldn't, I wasn't sure that I wouldn't, I wasn't able to practice for a while, at least over a week, at least. And then we're coming into peak week. So I remember peak week going, oh my gosh, what do I do? Like if I can't, if I can't pull this off or if I, if I do, I can't really practice until the day, until I perform on stage. 
And so at the last minute, I decided to switch and I didn't want to give up all the hard work I put in. So I switched to uh, figure and fitness model. So there were two other categories that you could go into in that, in that organization. And so I didn't know where I would land because I I had been preparing for the fitness routine. So it was just a gamble. So I, I entered both and I ended up winning figure and then I got second in fitness. So I, I did well in both of them, but figure seemed to be, I was a bit more muscular. So that was the, that was the one for me. Uh, so I stuck with that. And then the following weekend, I, I stuck with that. I went to a CPA show, which was OPA back then actually, and uh, competed in only figure. And, and that one really, I won that one as well. So, um, so from there I was like, okay, and this was supposed to be a one and done Halloween kind of show, but it's, it's, I'm doing all right and yeah, I seem to like it. <laughs> so I might as well keep going. So I, I planned on continuing and then I got the job offer um, with the uh, the airline, you know, that would deploy me to the UN and uh, I didn't think it'd be possible. So I thought, okay, well, this is a, you know, grown up job. This is more important than training for these shows and I've got to do it. So I, I accepted the position and when they first told me Afghanistan, uh, I was like, okay, I think my fitness you know, endeavors are on hold for right now, thinking that we wouldn't be able to do that over there. And uh, a few months later, I got there. And it was the most motivational place to train, because there's really nothing else to do. So we were on a military base. And it's, you know, mostly just guys working out. Like when they're not, you know, out patrolling or whatever inside the base, you're either eating or you're working out. There's nothing else to do. <laughs> so I, like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Why would I not train for this? So I thought, okay, well, you know, I might as well keep going. So I continued to prep for another show. And while I was based in Kandahar, and then uh, I just made sure I flew home just before. So I got home two weeks before the show just to finish the last the final bit. Uh, the gym was pretty great in Kandahar on the base. Uh, the only real challenge was the food. Right. And then the, you know, environmental stressors that naturally come with living there. So, uh, there were definitely problems, you know, challenges, uh, rocket attacks and such where, you know, I can't really go, I really don't have time for this Taliban. Like I got to get to the gym. <laughs> like, this is not cool. Like, could you fire at us later? <laughs> you yeah. know, so, you know, things like that happen, but, uh, made it work. And I, I ended up loving the challenge more. I ended up, it meant more to me because it was harder. And then, so I, I don't know, I just, I had more of a desire to, to do it. Um, but when we left Afghanistan the, the following year, um, going to Africa was another story. It was a, a greater challenge than I ever imagined. So I right. thought, oh, okay, I can compete over here and like nothing can stop me. But, you know, getting to Africa where many of the places you just don't have a gym, you cement at the most like homemade cement weights was the best we could come up with. Mm. Um, we'd use air aircraft brakes, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So we, we would create or make what we could out of, out of things, but there was no guarantee. So I did put it on hold while I was, when I first went to Africa, uh, put it on hold for about five years and then, and then I was hungry again. So I was like, oh, I'll figure out how to do something with the cement. Right. <laughs> so, right. so we did it again. So we'll mm -hmm. talk about the training 
second, and I think we'll zone yeah. in on the Africa portion for that. But I want to go back to your time in Afghanistan and talk about your nutrition there. So the gym setup was pretty good. Your training was like pretty set aside from avoiding intermittent uh, rocket attacks. <laughs> you know, you had you had the stuff that you needed to, to train properly. Yeah. Um, now your food, I assume that it wasn't like, you know, you weren't going out grocery shopping. You didn't have like a full kitchen. There were like food was available and this is what's for dinner. If you don't like it too bad. Mm-hmm. And is that more or less correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So you then, can't, you can't control it. Right. So, so given that, and you know, we talk about not having the, you know, the perfect macros and I don't have this ingredient. I don't have that. Like how mm-hmm. did you actually navigate your food? What was your, what was your strategy for eating according to your goals given like having basically no choice? So it got really boring because there wasn't, there were, there were some choices, but in order to uh, stick to my goals or stick to my plan at the time. Uh, it was before I really even understood macros back then, to be honest. Um, so I was more on a meal plan, you know, when I first started and that meal plan hit those macros. So that was the idea, but it was actually the only thing that like, I couldn't have tried, there was no point in trying to fit things into macros because over there, there was no variety. So right. it's like, well, I might as well stick to a meal plan because really all there is is some boiled eggs. You know, I can take the yolks out and um, what else was there? There was chicken, but a lot of it's breaded and, and, and sauces uh, or it's not all chicken breast. So I would do the best that I could um, and I would try my best to get to know people and, you know, let them know what I was doing or what I was aiming for and eventually people were like excited by that and they, they would rally around me and go, okay, well, uh, I'll like steal you a few more eggs from the DFAC. It was called a DFAC. Um, it's like the mess hall. We just right. we call it a DFAC dining facility. And um, so I had my pilots, you know, stuff in boiled eggs in their pockets, uh, some of my military friends and yeah, we just kind of rallied together and it was super boring. I ate a ton of boiled eggs, a ton of tuna packets from the, you know, PX stores, they would sell those so I could buy tuna packets and um, chicken that I would actually, it was almost always breaded or in sauces. So I would take as much as I could in, in to-go containers and then come home and actually take the bread off and wow. wipe it down. And yeah, so that was the best that I could do. And it was just those things on repeat. That was it. It was just chicken, uh, boiled eggs and tuna for the entire prep really wow. boring at least yeah. for my my protein and then a lot of salads um again when it came to the carbs i had to stick with rice most of the time but again i could not i couldn't cook it myself so i couldn't control how much fat was in it like what kind of oils they're using uh so i would try my best to prepare things that I could. I actually brought a a grill and I had it in, we lived in sea containers. So I had a sea container and I had a grill in my sea container. So eventually I did kind of like backdoor, you know, buy boxes of chicken from the chefs of the defects. So once I had gotten to know people a little bit more, I was like, listen, this is what I'm doing. Can you sell me a box of chicken? I don't want the bread on it. This will be easier. So eventually 
I was buying it like from the chefs and cooking it in my sea container. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it sounds extremely difficult and also extremely boring, but yeah. like you made it work because that was your goals. And I think that that's like understanding that for, for people listening is like we, we talk, people get stuck on this like, oh, eating healthy is boring or like it's hard, it's whatever. And it's like there's there's levels to these things of difficulty and everything's relative. Like I, I get mm-hmm. that. Most people are not living in that situation, me included. Like I don't know what that's actually like. I can imagine it, but I don't know what that's actually like. And so I'm sure I'd struggle at first to like figure it out. And then eventually you, you know, like you said, you get to know people, you get to figure out the ins and outs and you, and you make it work. But, but understanding that like, Hey, you can do this. Like you live in you know North America for the most part, people who are listening, you have grocery stores, like you have, you have all the options available to you. And sometimes mm-hmm. that is the problem is having too many options, but mm-hmm. maybe reducing some of those options and just really thinking about like, what do I need to do to get to my goals? And then, and then do that rather than thinking always about like, what is the thing that I want to enjoy the most at every moment of, of every moment yeah. that I eat, right? The food is, should be enjoyed and I'm all for that, but also it has to be, it can't be the crux of what, of what is like holding you back from, from getting what you want. And there's some, you have to put the work in is I think what I'm, what I'm, what I'm getting at here. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, you are obviously able to do that despite way less than stellar conditions. And I think another thing to highlight there is like for, and this is again, just biology, but like if you were a 247 pound man, like probably that breaded chicken and all the sauces would probably be fine because you can just, you need that many more calories and that much more food. Right. And I would assume that mm-hmm. some of the stuff that they're doing is to beef up the calories without having like more expensive food on like a military base. Um, but you obviously have to eat according to you and what you needed, not just what was there and what someone else, maybe there was another guy on the base who was a bodybuilder and he was 250 pounds. Like you can't be doing the same things because you're not the same people. Right. No. Yeah, exactly. And you reminded me of a good point as well. It's, it's that successful people, they just make their environment easier. Hmm. So we don't have like, I, I, I'm not going to have so many tempting, uh, snacks in my home because then I, I don't have to worry about that. Right. So if I don't have those things in my cupboards, then it makes it a lot. Um, it's not, it's not bad food. It's not things that there's nothing that's off limits. Uh, but it's not going to distract me from my goals. And because it's off limit, not off limits, I can go out and enjoy it and enjoy it in a much better way. So when I do have a dessert or a burger or something like that, it's not something I'm having at home. I'm making it special. I'm actually going out and having it and, and enjoying it even more because I've, it's not something I make for myself all the time where I don't care if my chicken is incredible. It's, it's, I've, I think I'm pretty good at cooking it by now. You know, I've done more, more than enough food preps, but I'm not as picky about that. So when I eat out at restaurants, it's going to be the things that are special. Yeah. Every meal doesn't need to be like a, you know, Michelin star meal, like get, get, get good enough at cooking or prepping or whatever, and then just deal with that. And then, like you said, treat your, 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 your desserts, like actual treats. Like you get so excited mm-hmm. about that burger. You get so excited about that, the, the donut or the, whatever ice cream, whatever your thing is, uh, because then you'll just enjoy it so much more than like, if it's something yeah. that you, that you always have every day of the week. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you are able to nail down the nutrition and that was difficult, but you did it. Now mm-hmm. the training in, in Africa, there was a little bit of a hiatus and, and, you know, more difficulties. And, and one thing that I kind of want to zero in here is like, you didn't, like the brakes from the airplane and stuff that you use, these cinder blocks and whatever you had, 
you didn't really know what the weight of those things were. So mm-hmm. how did you structure your weight? Because we're so used to like, you know, do three sets of 10, you know, at, at 50 pounds and three sets of 12 at, you know, 55 pounds, whatever it is. But, you know, when you don't know the weight or the shape or like the balance of an object, like how did you actually do your training? Did you just lift it until you got tired and then that was it? Or was there was there more to it or how did you, how did yeah. you structure it? A lot of the time it was. So it wasn't that I could really progressive overload or go up in weight because there wasn't that much variety. Uh, A lot of my, when I did get back into uh, prepping for shows, I was mostly living in Uganda and Uganda had a lot more available. Um, There was a gym, we couldn't get to it all the time and it didn't have that much equipment. So I couldn't rely on it. So what I did is I ruined my suitcases and I brought over, you know, I remember in one suitcase, I brought over a 25 pound kettlebell. Another suitcase had two 10 pound, uh, yeah, I said kettlebell, 25 pound kettlebell, two 10 pound, like a pair of dumbbells and, um, a skipping rope, a mat and a 12 pound weighted vest that I wore. I would wear it on the plane all the way to Africa. One don't wear vests on a plane and people don't like that. So (laughs) I get weird looks in my neighborhood wearing weighted vests. So I can imagine on a plane, how that looks. On a plane, it doesn't go so well. It really doesn't go so well. So if you're going to buy a weighted vest to wear on a plane, make sure it's colorful. Make sure it sticks. Don't make sure you do not want it to be black. Okay. So mine was blue that, that I think that helped a little bit. Um, but also it was something that it was only 12 pounds. So I could actually take it off, put it in my backpack. And so I would be able to bring it without wearing it. But then if I needed to, if it was winter, I had a jacket on, then I could wear it. And then I'd have be able to bring more of my carry on because that was the idea. I still, I was going for minimum two months every time I went on deployment. Uh, So I didn't want to really use up. I wanted to wear it if I could so that I could still use my carry on bag. So it was very tricky. In the winter, I could get away with wearing it. So I would get excited for travel in the winter. Um, so funny. But then when I got to Africa, of course, it's not winter. So, <laughs> you know, leaving Canada, you're like, oh, my gosh, like, this is so this is so heavy. I've got my big winter coat on, my 12-pound vest. Yeah. <laughs> like, you get to the airport security, you're like, what is with this girl? <laughs> um, but then when you get to Africa, you're just like, now you've got all this stuff and you're yeah, you take all the just sweating buckets. You're like, <laughs> yeah. now what do I do? Yeah. So there was, it was difficult. It was definitely difficult to travel that way. Uh, but I made it work. And then once I got the kettlebell to Africa and the dumbbells, I left them there. So I didn't go back and forth with things. Uh, so I had a basic amount of equipment. Now, the only other thing is I had zero control over my schedule or what countries I'd be in. So Mm. my boss would say, Hey, you know, sometimes they'd give you 24 hours notice and say, Hey, what are you doing? Can you go to Congo tomorrow? And you're like, okay. Uh, (laughs) And then you're there. And next thing you know, you get sent to Sweden. Not, not that that's a normal place that we would work, but we did have a contract there and that did happen. So I went from, you know, Congo to Sweden to Uganda and you're just going back and forth and you do not have the proper uh, clothes for everywhere that you go and you don't have equipment for everywhere. And I'm not going to bring my kettlebell everywhere with me. So I'd have to play the odds. I'd be like, okay, the chances are I'll be in Uganda for this amount of time. I'll leave a kettlebell there. If I end up in Congo, I will get somebody else, a pilot to bring in a kettlebell from Canada. Like you, I found ways. I got right. really, really uh, strategic about how I got equipment and, and weights to Africa. 
but it happened and uh, it worked. And eventually I had, you know, uh, a 30 pound in Congo and a 25 pound in <laughs> Uganda. And then, so a little bit of variety. Worldwide, yeah, that, that was it. I pretty much relied on that though. So when I, when I did that first prep back to stage, that was all I actually relied on. So wow. I thankfully, as I said, I was in figure before. So I was naturally a bit more muscular and I just took it as, okay, well, this isn't going to be perfect. I'm just going to, I'm already fairly muscular. So I'm just going to be working on a lot more of conditioning and, and fat loss and just kind of shedding, uh, you know, the normal extra weight that we would have on um, and getting ready for stage that way. So there was no progressive overload because I couldn't control that. Right. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was just more of a, of a fat loss and conditioning kind of workouts and a lot of hit, uh, to get to stage. And so that's how, uh, how I really first got back into it, uh, not expecting anything, you know, amazing to happen out of that. Uh, but it actually worked out well and I did win my, my pro status from that. There you go. There you go. Prep. Yeah. So I think, I think some of the takeaway from this is, is adapting your expectations to the reality of your situation. Like yeah. I'll have people who approach me and you know, they'll, they'll want to get like, you know, build all this muscle or do all this, like you have this, like these big fitness goals. I'm like, okay, I've got, you know, they're at home, not in like a, you know, a, a country that's far away and they're mm-hmm. at home and they're like, oh, I've got like a, you know, a red band, uh, a 12 pound kettlebell and like a yoga mat. I'm like, okay. Mm. nice but like you're not going to gain any you're not going to gain an appreciable amount of muscle this is just the the reality of the situation Um, but this doesn't mean that you can't become fit or improve your fitness or improve your health or whatever like there's still plenty of things you can do we just have to set the expectations accordingly like you said if you wanted to transition to go into the bodybuilding category probably wouldn't have ended up very well because Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have been able to put on muscle necessary to compete in that category however you had the necessary equipment to maintain the muscle that you did have and lean out to compete in the category that you did win in. So it's a really just about like, again, matching your expectations to the reality uh, of your situation, which I think is where a lot of people get stuck. They have big goals mm-hmm. and maybe it's not their fault, but they have big goals and it's like, okay, but are you actually willing and able to do the things that it takes to get that thing? Right. If not, then, you know, maybe we've got to adjust that and that's okay. It's okay to yeah. change your goals as long as you're getting healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say a lot of people like some of my clients when they when they go on vacations, and I always adjust, you know, and we pivot and I and I adjust workouts around a vacation or an injury or whatever is happening in their life. Uh, There's going to be many times where we do need to adjust for their for our clients. And that's not a problem. It's just that it is important to have that talk with them ahead of time and say, okay, well, in this time, we're probably not going to progress to this particular goal that you're going after. But if we can maintain, then that's amazing. If you can go and, you know, bucket list Europe right now <laughs> and not go off the rails and, you know, still get your your steps in, um, you know, a decent amount of cardio and and train, you know, wherever you go then that's great. We might not, the food might not be perfect. Traveling is tough when it comes to a meal plan or macros or whatever your approach is. That is extra hard, uh, especially on airplanes as well. Just even the, the travel to get there, we're so, it's hard to get enough water. We're so dehydrated. Uh, there's not much movement. So one thing, you know, I always tell people after being a flight attendant for so long, uh, get up and walk around, book an aisle seat so that you can do that, especially on a long flight 
like book an aisle seat so that you can get up, walk around, buy water after security, buy as much water as you possibly can, because the the crew is only going to have so much. And then when they come around, they're going to give it to you in this glass this small. (laughs) And especially if you're somebody who is really focused on your health and fitness, you are having much more than that. I mean, I'm like, well, I have two bottles beside me right now. Like I, I can't help it. Right. So keep those things in mind. And it is absolutely worth it to pay airport prices for bottled water after security. It is absolutely worth it. Just like any investment in our health is because the times that you don't, and then you're completely dehydrated and you get overseas uh, most of the time I'd end up getting, you know, a cough or a cold yep. would start or something like that just from not taking care of myself for those 24 hours. Yeah. You know, and so I don't know, it's not worth you, it. You would know better than me, but at most, if not all airports that I've been to in North America and in Europe, like there's at least like a water fountain or a water fill up station where if you bring mm-hmm. an empty water bottle, you're, mm-hmm. you're allowed to bring that through security and then you can fill right. that water bottle up and you can, it can be huge. It doesn't matter how big it is as long as you can fit it in your, in your, in your bag. Um, but that, like, that's my strategy for, for water. Cause I've same thing is like, I can never get enough water. It's just like these yeah. little tiny cups. It's like, okay, well, like, that was lasting me five seconds. Like now what? <laughs> yeah. We call them the little shot glasses, you yeah. get a little shot of water and that's all you are going to get on the flight. And so because of that, and because they just realistically, if everybody wanted, you know, one and a half liter, uh, 1.5 liter bottles there, they can't do that. So take that ownership, you know, it's just like for our health and fitness for anything for just take that ownership. When I travel, yeah, I pay the price for a guest pass at gyms and it's absolutely worth it, yeah. <laughs> you know? And if I, if I want to save some money and, and get some activity outside, then I'll do that if I can. But if I can't, then I'm going, I'm going to go to a gym. It's, it's, it's absolutely worth it. And I actually just kind of flip my, um, the way I look at it. I, I think about, oh, this is part of the experience. Like this is part of travel. Mm-hmm. So now I get to try a new gym and see what it's like and what are gyms in Sweden like and, you know, how awesome is that going to be and what equipment do they have or how do they train? I, I take it as part of the tour. Yeah. So <laughs> that's a good way to think of it. I, I think that I would, you know, agree with you on that one as a, fitness enthusiast we'll say but like other yes. people might be like oh what a what a drag and you know that's that's fine <laughs> but again it just comes to like set your expectations uh, accordingly and like you said maintenance can be progress i think yeah. people get caught up in this always chasing some goal always chasing fat loss muscle gain strength gain you know whatever it is but like at some point you're gonna like not want that anymore you're just going to want to be like i'm good i'm I'm as lean as i want to be i'm as strong as i'm willing to get i'm as have as much muscle as like i'm willing to put on like then what you don't just continue to chase it for forever like you just want to maintain that and that's where you want to kind of live for the most of your life and so if i always think about it as like travel is kind of practice for that it's like okay we've been in this fat loss phase for two three months you know whatever it is and now you've got to go on some work trip for a week or a vacation it's like okay well let's practice that because after this like you're going to want to stay there so let's practice that maintenance despite imperfect conditions and if we land you know close to where we want to then that's a check mark we're good and we just get back at it once once we're back in our normal environment but you know like you said you got to mold your environment uh to, to be as advantageous to you as possible and for most people, again, they're not going into environments that are as as limited as to the environments uh, that that you've lived through. Yeah, but it's it's a it's a great challenge. I, I love that because because I've been in those environments, then it makes going you know on a vacation to you know Dominican or Mexico so much easier. And it's like, oh, okay, I got this. So yeah. and and that's not just for me; that's for anybody. So that's anyone you know 
take your past, take a, take a situation that you've been in that has really challenged you and use that as fuel for your next challenge for whatever the next scenario is. And if it happens to be something like this, where it's, you know, staying on track with your fitness, well, is there a time from your past that you can draw from where you were successful in that? And if you weren't because you're really new and you're a beginner to fitness, then what else in your life have you been successful at in your Mm. career or in education or uh, with your family? What else can you look at where you're really proud of, you know, what you've achieved there and what you've created and how can you turn that into your fitness goal and taking care of your health because you take care of your health and your fitness, you're going to be around longer for those people for, you know, to be able to do the work that you're passionate about, to be able to care for your loved ones. So yeah. How can you, how can you focus forward? I 100% agree with that. And this is where there's so much crossover between like, just fitness and life. And there's so many lessons that we learn like both ways. And I think that in the gym is kind of a, a microcosm of, of the things that are happening in, in, in an individual's life, not in the grand scheme of the world. There's a lot of geopolitical things that are happening that have nothing to do with the gym at all, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, um, you know, the things in your life and just improving and controlling your situation and, and setting goals and being organized and time management and all of these things that can kind of be learned, um, in and, and through the gym and then take them, you know, back and forth through mm-hmm. all of that. But, um, I think that in a way, some people might think like, well, it's easy for Julia because she's lived through all this stuff. It's, you know, difficulty is, is relative, right? Mm. You know, the hardest thing, you know, 10 of 10 hard day is a 10 of 10 hard day, no matter where you are in the world, even if someone else's is, is worse for you. So Mm. to, to that thought, like, how do you kind of handle that? If that's anything you experience, if it's not, then like, then, then it's cool. But do you get that pushback ever? Like, well, it's easy for you to say you've done this before. Mm, I do, but then it's usually to do with fitness. So somebody just sees the end result. They mm. just see what you've achieved and they don't actually know the story to get there. Right. So uh, a lot of that comes from, and unfortunately when you've competed for so long and you've done a lot of fitness modeling because they go hand in hand um, and people only see that. So they don't see the the journey to get there and we all have a journey. And so what I would tell people is that you know you might think that I can achieve these things and that I'm capable of it because you see the end result or because my challenge in your eyes seems harder than yours. But that's relative. That's completely relative. You know, when I was in uh, South Sudan, no no yeah, uh, Sudan actually during the Sudan uprising. Um I remember doing a prep for a show there and people thinking, I have no idea how you're doing this. And I would try to explain to them. I'm like, you don't understand. There's pros and cons to all of our situations. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's tough. We're in, you know, uh, a scary environment. However, I'm over here as a single woman with my work environment. I don't have four kids that I'm making different meals for. You know, I don't have the temptations of the grocery stores that you have. We don't have, we have very limited supplies. So I actually, for me, being able to control, especially when you work in war zones and you can't control so many things around you, the, the few things that we can control is what I held on to and I held on to really tightly. So if I could control my health and fitness and my daily activity, that helped my mindset. And if my mindset was strong, 
that also impacts the people around me. And if I'm impacting the people around me in a positive way and raising morale on base, then that is helping all of us get through a scary war, <laughs> right? So yeah, we, we do what we can to impact positively the people around us. And so that was what my main concern was. And that's really what kept me going and competing for so long. Uh, go figure, I, I leave that lifestyle and I'm actually not competing anymore because it's just not, it's not the same draw. It's not, it's not just all about the physique or about the body. It, I, I liked what else it brought into my life and how it helped the people around me. Because I always found others would rally and others would want to train with me. And uh, I, I knew that it was helping my coworkers. So it meant more to me because of that, and which turned into, you know, creating my business and impacting in that way. But I didn't have the challenges that others had. I had zero uh, desire to have some of the local treats because, yeah, there was lots of good local um, Syrian desserts or that sort of thing. And it's not like I wouldn't try it. I would, but it's not comfort food that I grew up on. Right. So the comfort sweets that I grew up on weren't challenging to me because they weren't around me where somebody at home, if they're training in Canada or the US and they've got all the variety of restaurants, plus they've got all of their social crowd, they've got their friends and their family and their kids and so many other things that could tempt them or derail them in that way. Not that these people mean to do that to them, but it just happens. And so we just had a different situation. And so my situation wasn't actually harder. It wasn't harder at all. In many ways, it was easier. That is a super interesting way to to think about it. And I think that I'm going to listen to that little spiel a couple of times. I want to like hit the rewind button and re-listen to that yeah. and let that sink in and think about what it, how it applies to your own life. And, you know, I think uh, and a nice way to sum that up is like control what you can control and then just let everything else, you know, fall as it may. And then if, and then that plus like leading from the front to help other people. One thing we didn't get to, to talk about, I know we're running a little short on time now is just like the mental health benefits of exercise and the community support of all that. But I think it leads perfectly into what you're doing with your group coaching, your army of angels now is like you're leading from the front and all these people are feeding off of everything that you're doing to improve their lives, both, both physically and, you know, psychologically and all of the things. Um, and, and we just need, you know, I think a lot more of this, this leading from the front is really the way because anyone who's ever tried to help like someone in their family get healthy. It's like you can tell people all all day that they shouldn't be doing unhealthy behaviors, but it's not really an effective way. It's like you have to lead them by by doing the thing, and then and then they will follow. Mm-hmm. And and you do an excellent job of that. So so I applaud you for that. But that that mindset shift of thinking about what are the actual pros of my situation, despite on the surface it might look like a, a negative situation, is something that myself and probably many many others should really take a look at in, in our own lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot uh, better for our own mindset on the daily as well to concentrate on what you can control and all the positives around you in any kind of scenario, because we've all been through rough times. And I know, um, yeah, we don't have a lot of time to touch on it, but if we, uh, if we chat again or anything about, we could get into the mental health side, Mm -hmm. the mental health side of it, we all went through hard times equally across the world, you know, during the pandemic. So in that time, I don't think it it wasn't uh, trauma Olympics. We were not comparing like who's got it worse. We all had a horrible time. (laughs) (laughs) So if we really wanted to get through that and we did, then we had to concentrate as often as we could on the positives. 
and then be that leader for people around us because there might be a day where I'm feeling positive, but my partner or my family members or somebody is not. And so by me being that leader, that is going to impact them. And that's the same thing with our health and fitness as well. So if you are leading by example, you have no idea who you are impacting. We are because we are always impacting people around us. It is not just some fitness influencer or some celebrity uh, fitness model, anything like that. Absolutely everybody is impacting their direct circle. So it's important to understand the power that you have. 100% agreed. And maybe we'll set up a, a, a part two and get into kind of the other <laughs> the other half of this. Um, mm. But Julia, just to wrap up, th- thank you so much for, for being here today and, and sharing about your story and sharing with us. Um, before we sign off, what is your contact info? Where can people get to know more about you? Uh, I'll throw it in the show notes, but if you want to just rattle it off here so people can people can. Uh, oh, tap sure. In. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, Julia Shelley on Instagram, but it's S-H-E-L-L-E-Y. Everyone does just the L-Y. So it's E-Y. And then uh, that's my main page. Uh, and then my business group is Army of Angels. Amazing. And when is the next retreat planned for tentatively? It should be, I, I believe it's going to be either March or April next year. Um, and then one, another one in November. So I think for March or April, it's back and forth right now. We're deciding between Thailand or Bali. Awesome. And then in November, it will most likely be Costa Rica. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So people still have time to join if they're hearing this now in October, yeah. November-ish yeah, of 2023. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Well, check that out, everybody. Julia Shelley and Army of Angels. Um, I'll throw the links in the show notes. Julia, is there any last message that you want to leave the people with here in closing? Oh, I don't know. We, we touched on so much, <laughs> I feel like. So yeah, I think the number one thing near the end, it was that uh, just to control your environment. So as much as you can control your mindset and your environment. So that's not just the, that's not just the environment around you, but inside your head, <laughs> well, how you're speaking to yourself on the daily, right? Because a lot of that is we uh, can limit ourselves with our own self-talk and we can, you know, shoot ourselves in the foot by just how we set up the environment around us. So make it easier for yourself to get to the gym, make it easier for you to stick to your, your nutritious plan um, by setting up your environment around you and knowing that if you do that, you're impacting others to do the same. So be a leader. Well said, Julia. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. Make sure you're following Julia. Make sure you're following myself as well on Instagram and all the places. Um, you know, Like, share, subscribe to the podcast. All that good stuff helps get this message out to more and more people. And that's that. Go outside. Be a good person. We'll see you next time. <laughs>